you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them please to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians are called epistles. Epistles are just a fancy word for letters. These were letters written by the Apostle Paul with the assistance of Silas and Timothy. These were letters written by those three men to the Church of God at Thessalonica. The theme of both letters, the theme of both epistles, is that Jesus is coming again. And they were looking for Jesus in that day. Now, if they were looking for Jesus in that day, 2,000 years ago, how much more should we be looking for Jesus today? They just had a few of the signs. We have all of the signs. And that's what our message is this morning. Getting ready for the coming of Jesus. Not just looking for his coming, but getting ready for his coming. Now let me ask you a question, if I may. Are you ready? Are you ready? for what lies ahead, whatever that may be. The Bible says, in the last days, perilous times shall come. Dangerous days shall come. Fearful seasons shall come. Cataclysmic events shall come. The Bible also says all who desire to live in Christ Jesus, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, shall suffer persecution. In the last days there will be perilous times, there will be persecutions that will come against the people of God, that will come against the church. The Bible says in the last days the world will be a massive tidal wave of disasters and darkness and destruction and death and damnation. And this tidal wave will sweep across the world and sweep men into eternal abyss. Again, are you ready? Are you ready for what lies ahead? Because that's what Paul is emphasizing in the message this morning. He's talking to those believers of that day. He's talking to you and I of our day. That we must be ready. You don't get ready for tomorrow, tomorrow. You get ready for tomorrow, today. You don't get ready for the future in the future. You get ready for the future in the present. A surgeon does not get ready to operate on you by walking into the operating room. Or at least you hope not. You hope that he's looked a little bit about what he's going to do. 
Soldiers don't get ready for combat by just showing up at the front lines on the day of the battle. They've been trained. They've been drilled. They've been put in positions that were fortified and put in place long before the battle. And you and I do not get ready for the coming of Jesus when the eastern sky splits open. It's too late. So this morning we're going to talk about getting ready for the coming of Jesus. The marks of a maturing Christian who is getting ready for the coming of Jesus. Now, in our verses, Paul's going to talk about five things. In verse 13, he begins by talking to us about how we need to get ready for the coming of Jesus how we need to mature ourselves in the faith while we're doing that, through the Word of God. He says in verse 13 of some important truth about the Word of God. He says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Okay, What are they thanking God about? Because you, the Thessalonians, received the Word of God which you heard of us. And you received it not as the words of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. He begins by talking about if we're going to be be prepared for the last days, if we're going to be looking for Jesus, if we want to be mature in the faith, as those days approach, those perilous days, those days of persecution, those days of pain, then we must receive the Word of God. Now I want you to know the Bible is the Word of God. It does not contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation and all 64 books in between, It is the Word of God. It's inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant, it's relevant, it applies to all men of all generations. Heaven and earth may fade away, but not the Word of God. It is fully, totally, and truly the Word of God. Now, when it's taught or when it's preached, there is to be a response to it. You're not just to receive it like a knot on a log. Paul talks about how the Thessalonians received the Word of God. Now that word received is an interesting word because it talks about a threefold sequential response to the Word of God. When Paul came to the church at Thessalonica, When Silas and Timothy came with him, they taught Sunday school. They preached in worship services. And they taught and preached the Bible of their day. And the Thessalonians received it. Now that word received means three things. I told you before. It means three things in a sequence. First of all, it means that you hear the word of God that you actually hear it with the two ears that are attached to your head, and more importantly, with the ear that's attached to your heart. You hear the Word of God. 
Not only do you hear the Word of God, but you believe the Word of God. You hear it with your ears, and you believe it in your mind. You believe that what you've been heard is the Word of God, and it is true. And then you apply the Word of God. You take what you hear, you take what you believe, and you apply it to how you live the Christian life. Does that make sense to you? And when you do that, Paul says it will bring change into your life. It will bring a peaceful, joyful, hopeful, righteous, noticeable, lasting change into your life. That's called sanctification. It's, it's a transforming change that makes us more like Jesus. And the Word of God has the power to do that. If we will hear it, believe it, and apply it. All three are necessary. Now the reason why we don't see much change today from the teaching and preaching of God's Word is because sometimes those that were teaching and preaching don't hear it. Do you know it's possible to have your Bible open, your eyes wide open, looking this way at me and not hear a thing I say? I could prove it to you at the end of the service by asking you what I preached on. And some of you would be mighty embarrassed. I wouldn't do that to you. First of all, you have to hear the Word of God. Jesus talked about those in His day, not hearing. That's why He constantly said, you that have ears, hear what the Word of God's saying. The implication was people were walking around with ears on their head, but they weren't good for anything but holding their glasses. So some of us never hear. And then some of us don't believe it. You know, we have people today who don't believe the Bible's true. They pick and choose what they want to believe and discard the rest. But somehow they've got the impression that the Bible is a cafeteria line where you can go through and say, well, I'll take that, I'll take this, I'll take that, I'll take this, but I don't want none of the rest. No, no sir, no, ma'am, you take it all. You can't have just part of it, you take it all. It's all or nothing. But some people don't ever see any change in their life because they don't ever hear what's being said. They don't believe what's being said. Or they don't apply what's being said. You, if you hear and you believe but you don't apply, then you've wasted your time. And many people don't do any application to what they hear. So if we're going to be ready for the coming of Jesus, if we're going to be ready for what lies ahead that we might experience, which is the perilous times and the persecutions that are going to come, we better receive the Word of God. And by receiving it, that means hear it, believe it, and apply it. That's what the Thessalonians did. And Paul said, I commend you for that. May the word of God be to us what it was to a blind girl. The story is told of a girl that was born blind, never saw the light of day, 
never saw the colors of a rainbow. She never saw nothing but pitch black darkness. But she was taught to read through Braille. She was taught to read letters with her fingertips. And somebody gave her the Gospel of Mark, and this girl that was blind, who was taught Braille, began to read the Bible with her fingertips. And she fell in love with the Bible. She couldn't stop reading it. She read it often. She read it long. She read it day in, day out. She read the Gospel of Mark that she was given four, five, six, seven times, over and over and over again, so much, in fact, that calluses built up on her fingertips. Calluses that were so thick and insensitive that she no longer could feel the letters on her Braille Bible. It broke her heart. She had lost the touch in her fingertips. The doctor said if we try to take the calluses off, we may well hurt the nerves and you may never have any feeling. She went home and she cried and she cried and she cried and then finally she took her Bible. She said something like this. She said, Lord, Thank you for allowing me just a little bit of time to read your word. And then she kissed it. But she found something in that kiss. She found that her lips had a sensitivity to them. And that the word of God that she kissed, she could decipher with her lips. And so she continued to read the Word of God, not with her fingertips, but kissing it. May we be like that with the Bible. May we so love the Lord Jesus, the living Word, and the Bible, the written Word, that we're constantly kissing it. Hearing, believing, and applying. But then let's go on. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. If we're going to be ready for Jesus' coming, if we're going to be growing and maturing in this faith that God has given us, we, we, we need to receive the Word of God. But secondly, we need to expect the enemies of God. Verses 14 through 16. So you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. You have also suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. These are the same ones who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. They have also persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men. They forbid us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. And then verse 16, very interesting closing part to fill up their sins always, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Paul says if you want to be ready for the coming of Jesus, if you want to mature and grow in the Christian faith and the 
times that lie ahead. You have to expect the enemies of God to show. Do you know you have enemies? Yeah, you. Yeah, you. You have an enemy. You have enemies. I have an enemy. I have enemies. Anybody who claims the name of Jesus has enemies. You might not have an enemy if you have an ambiguous God, a he, she, it, or they God. But if you love Jesus Christ and you endeavor to walk with him in spirit and truth and love and righteousness, you will get enemies. And the Thessalonians were facing enemies. Now, where were the enemies coming from? I know, Pastor, from the government. Well, maybe. From the activists, those moral activists. Well, maybe. I know where it was coming from. It was coming from the bootleggers and the pot sellers and the homosexuals and the whoremongers and the liars and the thieves. That's where it was coming from. No, it wasn't. You might be surprised where the opposition was coming from to this church and to those that made up the church at Thessalonica. Do you notice the word? Look at verse 14. You have suffered like things of your own countrymen. The attacks that were coming against this church, the attacks that were coming against these believers were coming from the inside, not the outside, not from the seculars, not from the progressives, not from the humanists, but from those who claim to have religion. And they've always been the enemies of the cross. Religion crucified Jesus. Religion killed the apostles. Religion killed the prophets. And they'll kill us if they get their hands on us. Countrymen. That word is only used one time in the Bible, and it speaks of the inner circle of family and friends that they have. Oftentimes, the greatest obstacle for a husband living for Jesus is his wife. Oftentimes, the greatest obstacle from a wife living for Jesus is her husband. Sometimes the greatest obstacle, a stumbling block for a child to come to Jesus and live for Jesus is his parents. Family can do more to derail you and detour you and detain you and deny you than almost anybody else. That's why it's so important when you get married, young people, you marry somebody of like mind, like heart, and like faith. Because if you make a mistake in who you choose as a companion, it can come back to haunt you the rest of your life. And what the Thessalonians were experiencing was attacks from the inside by their own family and friends concerning their walk with Jesus. And again, they should not have been surprised because the Bible says all that endeavor to live godly lives in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
They just thought it would come from out there. They didn't think it would come from in here. Family and friends can be the biggest problems in us living for Jesus than anybody else. Now, I want you to understand why God allowed these persecutions to take place. You see, God controls everything. He doesn't cause everything, but He controls everything. And God allowed these family members and friends to bring persecution into the life of the church, into the life of the Christians there for one reason. It's called growth. Christians don't grow on walking on the smooth streets that are paved with gold, basking in the sunshine, smelling the roses as they tiptoe through the tulips on the way to heaven. You don't grow on that. You may think you do, but you don't. Churches grow and Christians grow on the gravel roads of life when the storms are raging and the weeds are in front of you and everything is falling down and falling apart and falling away. That's when you grow. The church never grows when it's being blessed it grows when it's in the crucible of suffering. Why the American church is so soft today. We don't understand persecution, but we will. The third world churches put us to shame with their dedication and their fervor and their zeal. Because all they have is Jesus. They don't have nothing else. We have everything else, but we don't need Jesus. Understand suffering is God's way of maturing the faith of His people and His church and preparing them for what lies ahead. The same God who allows that to occur is the same God who monitors it and when enough is enough, He takes care of it. That's what I was telling you at the last part of verse 16 kind of kind of confusing, to fill up their sins always. For the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. You know what Paul's saying? God will allow the persecution to occur, and when the growth takes place that he wants to see, he then will remove the persecution. Persecution has limits. And when those limits are met or exceeded, God will step in and take away the persecution. That's true of nations, that's true of churches, that's true of families, and that's true of individuals. When the waters of man's wickedness begin to overflow the, the, the dam of God's grace and mercy, a tidal weight of judgment will occur. So you might be saying, Pastor, I'm undergoing some persecution. Understand, God's using that to make you grow. And God has His hands on it. It will go no further than God wants it to go. And when God has accomplished what He wants in your life, He will pull it off. That's encouraging to know. 
because we're going to face some things that we need to remember that. Okay. How do you get ready for Jesus' coming? How do you prepare yourself? How do you mature in the faith that you can be ready for what lies ahead? First of all, you receive the word of God. Second of all, you expect the enemies of God to come against you. Thirdly, you embrace the people of God. Verse 17, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Now Paul, Silas, and Timothy went to the church at Thessalonica and they spent some time there teaching and preaching the word of God. And then they left. They wanted to go back. They wanted to revisit the church. They wanted to revisit the people because they fell in love with those people. They actually got to know the people's names. They went to the people's homes. They had coffee with them and cake with them. They fellowshiped with them. They prayed with them. They encouraged them. They exhorted them. They cheerleaded them. They loved those people. And they wanted to go back and be with them. But they couldn't. And we'll talk about why in just a moment. But they had an affection for the people and for the church at Thessalonica. I wonder why he would emphasize that. Maybe it's because the Bible says that in the last days, God's people should not forsake the assembling of themselves together as is some, but they should come together more often, more frequently as the day approaches. We have some today, listen to your pastor, who says the church is no longer important, it's no longer relevant, it's no longer got a place in our society. The church, forget it. You can worship in your home, worship there. You can worship on the golf course, worship there. You can worship from a hunting stand, worship there. You can worship from the ball field, worship there. You don't need to go to church. The church is bad. The church is terrible. The church has caused all the problems we got. Abandon it. That's what these Pied Pipers today are saying. And what Paul is saying is you need the church more than ever. As the coming of Jesus draws near, you better have somebody to stand with you or you will stand alone and be swept away. There is strength in numbers. There is strength in unity and camaraderie and fellowship of God's people. The church is not perfect, but it is of God. And God wants his people as the day approaches to get in church and be together and support one another. Contrary, again, to what many are teaching. When the going gets tough and the fury of Satan is unleashed, you better have a church to go to or you will become prey for the lion that's on the prowl looking for whom he may devour. You know how lions kill most of their prey? They separate them from the 
the packs, the herds. They get them away from the, from the other animals. And they're isolated by themselves. They destroy that animal. And that's how Satan operates. He gets you away from the church. And then he destroys you. You're never more safer than when you're here. A man was walking down the road. He had a bucket in his hand of cracked corn. And as he was walking down the road, he was throwing the cracked corn over his shoulder. Behind him were a pack of pigs, hogs, if you will. And they were following him. And they were snorting up and eating the corn as he leads them. Somebody said, well, what are you doing? He said, I'm leading the hogs. They said, where are you leading them to? Slaughterhouse. The Pied Pipers today are feeding God's people cracked corn and telling them the church isn't relevant. Follow me away from the church. I tell you, they're leading you to the devil's slaughterhouse. How can we prepare for the coming of Jesus? How can we prepare ourselves for what will lie ahead? First of all, we must receive the word of God. Hear it, believe it, apply it. We must expect the enemies of God to try to hinder us, and those enemies will come from the inside out. Are you listening to me? They will come from family and friends. The very people you trust the most will be the most difficult as you try to live for Jesus. And then we need to embrace the people of God. We cannot stand alone. We must walk together locked arm in arm, drawing our strength and encouragement from each other. Fourthly, we need to beware of the adversary. Look at verse 18. Why couldn't Paul and Timothy and Silas get to the church? What was keeping them from coming? Why didn't they just buy a bus ticket? Why didn't they just call a taxi? Ride an airplane? Some of you think about that later, but... Uh, but notice the reason in verse 18. We wanted to come to you. Even I, Paul, wanted to come again. But Satan hindered us. Pastor, do you believe in a personal devil? Absolutely. The reason why some people don't believe in a personal devil is because they're walking with him. Hard to see somebody when you're walking with them. You give your life to Jesus and turn around, you'll run right into him. You'll know he's real. Once again, Paul says, I wanted to come and be part of your fellowship. I wanted to, but Satan hindered me. That word hindered is an interesting word. You know what it means? It means to tear up a road and make it impassable for somebody to get through. Satan tore up the spiritual road that would have allowed Paul to go back to the church at Thessalonica and be with those people. 
Now, I want you to understand something about Satan. He's always about destruction. He is a powerful enemy. But God is about construction. And God is more powerful. Satan is powerful, but God is all-powerful. Satan checks, but God checkmates. And so while Satan was laughing that he kept Paul from getting back to the church and to the believers, God is smiling. God is saying, okay, that's what you think you got away with, Satan? Fine. But I'm going to use what you did to trump you. Paul could not come because of the adversary. God said, that's okay. What I'm going to do is do two things that I couldn't have done if Paul would have came. First of all, this. I'm going to teach you, church, I'm going to teach you, Christians, how to lean on the Lord Jesus and not lean on men of God. Because the church at Thessalonica was leaning on Paul. They were leaning on Silas. They were leaning on Timothy. They had a hymn book, and the name of their song was Learning to Lean on Paul. And what God wanted to teach them, there's only one person you ever lean on, and his name is Jesus. Many of you think it's morbid talk, but listen to me. I will not be here forever. Your staff will not be here forever. Some of the leadership in this church will not be here forever. There will come a time when we will not be here. And if you've leaned on us, you will miserably fail when we're gone. Not our job to have you lean on us. Lean on Jesus. As great as any man may be, you don't lean on men. You don't lean on denominations. You don't lean on ceremonies and rituals. You lean on Jesus. And that's what God was teaching that church. He's all you need. Also, by not allowing Paul to go back, God was doing something else. He was giving me something to preach today to you. Because if Paul would have went back, why would he have to write the letter? So God, in his kindness to your pastor, said he needs something to preach. So he gave it to me by keeping Paul out of Thessalonica. I'm just kidding you on that. But Paul would have never wrote the letters that we've been blessed with if he would have went there in person. In closing... Are we prepared for the coming of Jesus? Are we prepared for what's coming down the road? Perilous times, persecutions and pains and suffering. I'm not trying to scare you. I just want you to know it's coming. How do we get ready, Pastor? You've got to receive the word of God. Hear it, believe it, apply it. 
You've got to expect the enemies of God to come after you. Don't be surprised when your family and friends try to get in your way for living for Jesus. Expect it. You've got to embrace the people of God. You've got to be in church. You've got to make the church a priority. Being with God's people in the final days is a priority. We need each other. Amen? If we don't hang together, you will hang by yourself. Around the neck, I might add. And then we must beware of the adversary, the devil. He's looking, he's probing, he's looking for ways to keep us away. But thank God that he's on the throne. And even when the devil appears to have triumphed, God overrules him and does something good through the bad. And then lastly, you say, Pastor, why even try? 19 and 20, and we're through. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul says the purpose of the Christian life is to bring glory to God and do good to others. We bring glory to God and we do good to others when we influence and impact their lives for eternity. Let me say that again. Our purpose is to bring glory to God and do good to others. We do that by using our influence and impact that God has given us through our presence, words, and deeds to touch people for eternity. One hundred years from now, nobody will remember nothing about you or me except the lives that we have touched for Jesus for eternity. Somebody wrote this, and I like this. One day we will lie in a box six feet under with grass growing over our heads. The money we made will be in somebody else's pocket. The job we had will be filled by another warm body. Our spouse may remarry. Our children will move on. Our friends will forget us. Our house will rot. Our cars will rust. Our valuables would be fought over and trashed. And people will walk by our gravesite and look at our tombstone and see our name and say, Who is that guy? The only thing that will matter in eternity is who have we influenced and impacted for Jesus. Who did we touch? Who has our fingerprints on their soul? Because we help bring them to a saving faith and we help them grow in that faith. One by one, they came. Far as the eye could see. 
Each one somehow influenced and impacted by our life when we were on earth. In eternity, they come and shake our hands and thank us. Those are called trophies, ladies and gentlemen. And your trophy case in heaven, will you have any trophies? Some of us will have hundreds, if not thousands of people who will greet us and tell us thank you. I'm here because of you. I grew in the Lord because of you. Thank you. Others of us will have a bare trophy case because we never bothered to focus on the things that matter. And the things that we focused on are no more. Because heaven and earth will pass away. And those things will not matter. Rewards. We look for the coming of Jesus and get ready for tomorrow. Let's be encouraged that God keeps the record. And let's make a difference in somebody's life. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.